Our gospel reading uh, from Matthew 22 sort of lives right in the middle of a very tense few chapters. If you want to go later and read back a little bit, which of course the gospel has taken us there over the last couple of weeks, but read even further back to chapter 21, read ahead to chapter 25. Chapters 21 through 25 of Matthew, they can feel a bit like a cage match happening in Jerusalem. It's tense. Jesus has just entered Jerusalem on a donkey, and Matthew tells us that the whole city was stirred up. And that most of the people, he says most of the people had spread their cloaks. They had spread palm branches out in the road ahead of Jesus, and they were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, which comes into question in our reading today. But this is right at the beginning as Jesus is going into Jerusalem. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And after arriving, uh, Jesus, he went directly to the temple and caused a ruckus there, right? He overturned the tables. He uh, cast people out of there. The money changers were driven out. And then and there, right in the temple, he began to heal people, which is an important little detail. This was the intent, in many ways, of the temple, that God would meet with people. The children in the temple at the time, too, we find out, they were still chanting. They were still calling out, crying out and calling him the son of David. And at this point, it gets under the skin, Matthew says, of the chief priests. And they begin to question him. And right there, they said, with what authority? Where did you get the authority to do all of these things? To overturn the tables, to heal these people. Where where are you getting this authority? And Matthew then, after that, records wave after wave of conflict with the religious establishment. Their first strategy was to try to expose and discredit him as many of the charlatans or would-be messiahs who had come before him. They, They try to do this through loaded questions. But by the beginning of chapter 26, they are just plotting to arrest him quietly and to have him killed. And so Jesus... In our reading today, he has finally shut them down by asking them who the son of David really is. And it's still probably ringing in their ears, so to speak. If they have authority, then they should know who the son of David is. What is the connection? But they don't. And no one, Matthew says, was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So Jesus By this point, he has stunned the very serious and self-righteous Pharisees. He has stumped the sophisticated, the high society Sadducees. And now here in verse 35, they've ganged up on him, which might seem to have been a good strategy. And then they sick, maybe their slickest lawyer on him to to try to, to stump him, to try to expose him. But his answer, per usual, leaves them without any ammunition and with a headache. And it's kind of exhilarating, isn't it? When I say all these things, when you read all of these things, we love that. We love when Jesus does this kind of thing and puts those kinds of people in their place. But let me ask you just a few questions about that before we get into the meat of the text. Don't raise your hands unless you really want to be brave. But how many of you don't like to have the status quo challenged? Would you rather not have the boat rocked? Do you hate when you have to deviate from the plan that you've made or the path that you've laid out or that has been laid out for you? How much do you rely on the comfort of your existing knowledge and what it affords? 
Do you hate being wrong, especially in front of others? Do you like to have control? What happens when you don't? Do you struggle to surrender any of that control? What if someone showed up and challenged the very structures that undergird your sense of security and identity? Enough already, right? If that's even you a little bit, then I hate to tell you, my friend, you can relate to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, at least on one level, and so can I. The chances are really good that you and I, in our current stations in life, we may have resisted Jesus too, if we lived back then. This Jesus who is chipping away at the foundation of everything that we've built our lives and our understanding upon. And this is what's happening for them. Here's the thing, not unlike us, the Pharisees and Sadducees were part of a larger system. It's worth considering. And so were the frenzied crowds who at one moment are shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes. And then a little bit later are shouting, crucify him and are mocking him on his way to the cross. To be sure, the religious establishment of Second Temple Judaism had its place. Uh, it had been built. It had been preserved. It had been ratified. And it represented, by this point, a very serious systemic problem in which even sincere people, like Paul, as wrong as he was, was very sincere. He had participated in it. He had operated in it. So had Nicodemus who eventually puts his faith in Jesus. And scriptures say that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees came to believe in Jesus. But they were a part of this. These were people who thought what they worked for deserved and it required defense and stability for the sake of the people. This is how systems work, isn't it? Even errant systems, even corrupt systems. They aren't all run by sociopaths and sycophants. You know that, right? who are trying to stand on the necks of others. They are often maintained by people, well-meaning people, who've been told and continue telling themselves what they're doing is good and right and justified and even necessary. I mean, if you think about it, every one of us could probably admit that the American political system is eking toward absurdity in its function. Impotence. It's devolving in ways that feels like it's out of control for anyone to really do something about but we can see how difficult it is to change it without completely deconstructing it. For all Jesus teaches through these parables and through these hard questions, picking at this sort of dense fabric of the corrupted systems of his day, offending their minds to reveal their hearts, this conflict of ideas, it didn't ultimately unravel that fabric, that deal with that problem. All the arguments all the parables, all the clarity Jesus is bringing, which was confusion for many others, it didn't unravel it because it was far too entrenched. What did? What began to deconstruct that? His death and his resurrection. It truly began to free people of the heavy burden of the systems of which they were part. Why? Because the problem was deeper the system was just a symptom. It lived in their own hearts, in all of their hearts. It lives in ours. Hearts that were and are victimized and misled, but also complicit and sinful. It's around us. We're in it, and it's in us. And this is what Jesus came 
to address. It's this unfortunate relatability that we have with these religious rulers that I think leads us often to our own interrogations of Jesus. We all do it, operating from our own limited understanding, our own conditional willingness. Because if Jesus doesn't fit our agenda or our framework, if he threatens our status quo, our sense of control, we might try to marginalize or modify him too. I've done it. Why do we do it? To preserve ourselves at his expense. And of course, we too think it's good, and it's right, and it's justified, and it's necessary. I'm saying all this because I do think that it's helpful for us when we listen to this engagement with the Pharisees to be willing to see ourselves, our world, and our ways. Because like it or not, Jesus is still, doesn't matter who you are, he's still graciously challenging our ideologies and our systems and our complicity. He's still poking a finger through just the thin casing of our hollow treasures, the things we love too much. He's still prophetically inviting us to a way of life that's only found through admitting that the confidence we have built our lives on is really just a paper tiger. It's not enough. And yeah, we're misled, we're mistaken, it's often other people's fault, but it's also our flat-out self-interest and rebellion that plays a part. So when this slick lawyer that they've assigned, you often wonder, did they draw straws by this point? Like, who has to go and ask him the question? Somebody's got to do it, it's you. He asks him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? When they sent him and he asked him that they imagine that his answer is going to expose him and it's going to vindicate them probably in a couple of different ways and by the way we're talking about when they invoke this the great you know of all the commandments we're talking about a body of 613 old testament commandments if you count all the tiny ones that's 248 do's and 365 don'ts but when they ask him the question, understanding how they ask this question is really important. They ask him, poios, megas, and tole, which is really, they're saying, what kind of commandment is greatest? What class of commandments? And they had them divided in, in, into different classes. Uh, what, which one's most important? Is it the do's or the don'ts? Is it the ceremonial stuff? Is it the ethical stuff? They don't seem to be concerned, though, we notice, with which, what are the ones that God blesses and God rewards, the relational aspect of, of obedience. They want to know which one should most concern people. This is where they come from. And what they're doing is they're projecting, understandably. They are, it, this is a moralistic question seeking a moralistic answer. Hoping to trap people or trap Jesus in a moralistic framework. The deeper trap that Jesus could fall in is elevating one category of commandment over any other, which for some people, especially the most conservative rabbinical leaders, that it could have trapped him in a violation of God's character. Because many of them believe that because God is great, all the commandments are equally great. They came from God. You can't build any sort of category or hierarchy. And so what they were in some ways trying to do was to expose him as the ancient equivalent of a liberal. The second way that Jesus might be exposed is that by choosing, he'll at least make some people his enemy. 
There'll be more people to gang up on Jesus with them if whatever he says, whichever way he goes and chooses, he can, they can dis, uh, deepen the disagreement with some or alienate others. Someone is not going to like his answer. And they might join us. So they're focused here on behaviors and minutia and judgment and categories and opinion. They're trying to sort him. But here's where they've already lost. Jesus, on the other hand, is focused on God. He's trying to help them see God. As with the other two questions they asked in this chapter, leading up to our reading today, they are working from man-centered perspectives. Jesus is working from God-centeredness, and let me explain that. Remember these preceding questions. We've had them in our gospel over the last couple of weeks. The Pharisees want him to answer, or they had one of them, I think, The Pharisees want him to answer whether or not Jews should give taxes to Caesar, which is a trap. And Hannah preached on that. Might as well, Jesus says, because what really matters more is that we give ourselves to God. Caesar's face is on the drachma, but you are made in God's image and likeness. You belong to God. Then the Sadducees have a question, and they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, so they're going to sort Jesus out, right? And they want him to answer how he could sort out the earthly conundrums, like if if the resurrection is true, you know, here's this conundrum like remarriage. If a widow is actually resurrected and all of her seven husbands, and it's almost an absurd question, you know, seven husbands die, she gets into, the, you know, into heaven, there's the resurrection, and then who's her husband by this point? Whose wife will she be then? Jesus says no one's. Like the angels, we will all live for and with God. Marriage is for now. God is for Forever. His focus is on God and he's trying to shift theirs and all of his hearers in this direction. So in this third question, when we have today, Jesus doesn't take the bait that they hope he will take. But here's the thing. He does choose. He makes a choice, but it isn't one of the categories they give him. He chooses directly from Scripture and he's fusing Deuteronomy 6.5 with Leviticus 19.18. And here's the thing. Deuteronomy 6.5, this is something that devout Jews prayed every morning and evening of their lives. In some ways, Jesus was saying, there's nothing new to see here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And he changes the word strength to mind. I'll talk about that in just a minute. But he marries that with Leviticus 19.18. Because the answer is right in front of their eyes. It's right at the center of their common lives. It's right in the fat part of their history and of the law and of their identity. It's right in the heart of that famous Levitical list of do's and don'ts that begins in Leviticus 19. And all of them are anchored in this phrase. If you go back and read it, I am the Lord, your God. This is what those rules are about. I am the Lord, your God. Not only is this what Jesus is saying at the core of Judaism, it's in the core of humanity. Jesus is saying that the kind of commandment that is the greatest is affectional. It's not transactional. It's about love. It's about desire. This commandment is the greatest because it knows and reveals the most fundamental thing about us, friends. We are guided by our affections, singularly. That's how we're made. As the philosopher J.K. Smith says, 
You are what you love. And he draws on St. Augustine in his confessions to remind us of this. We know that animals are guided by their instincts and in some cases, simple approval and reward. I know many of you, um, your dogs, you really believe they love you. You can keep believing that, but it's still their instincts. They do love you. Forget I said that. Animals are guided by their instincts. Plants do what sun and soil allow. Planets are guided by the sun's gravity. The waves are guided by the moon's. But made in the image and likeness of God, human beings are guided by love, by desire, for one thing or another, for good or ill, to our glory or our shame. Love is what moves us. We must love something. Frankly, Jesus knows that they and we will love a God, but we might not love our God, your God. When Jesus says love him with all your heart, he means what we mean when we say the core, the center of our being, the Hebrew lev, the Greek cardia. These are words that are interchangeable really with our modern ideas of will and emotions, the thing going on in us and moving us, what we desire, what we assign value to and act upon. But cardia and lev, they also have something to do with the mind too. Because what we desire is what we tend to dwell on. Our minds go to that which we desire, and, and also that which we've been thinking about, we tend to desire more. What keeps finding its way to the center of our thoughts. And truth is, none of the ideas, this is the really interesting thing about the way Jesus tells us, none of the ideas that are represented by these three words, heart, soul, and mind, they're not easily pulled apart. There's this sort of overlap and they interpenetrate. They sort of stack and they layer our understanding as if to say that everything that's in you, the core, that's even mysterious is at work to move you. Point that toward God. They overlap, they interpenetrate these words as if to define love and worship as something beyond the edges of our control. Jesus reinforces this rationality aspect of love when he replaces, as I mentioned, the word strength in Deuteronomy 6 with dianoia, with your mind. This may have been because Matthew was a little more focused on the teaching and the understanding, um, but we find out that actually Mark and Luke do this as well. So Jesus, it seems like Jesus intentionally replaced this. And, you know, I think that this word dianoia is probably best understood as something to do with our imagination, the rumination that happens within us. What we, our deepest pondering, our dreaming that we envision. And this is why the ancients actually taught us to meditate on Scripture not to just get information, but to be with God in the words of his acclaim. That there is something powerful and going on in our desire when we hear the eternal word, when we gauge God, when we let the Lord himself inhabit our intellectual lives, when we give ourselves over to meditate upon it. And Jesus, again, these sort of interpenetrate, he includes the soul in this list, the suke that part of us that is uniquely spiritually human. Again, mysterious, the spirit which the Hebrews understood as far more interior and far more primitive than thinking and understanding. 
This is part of this part of us that's shaped by things deeper than just our choice and often beyond our awareness. It's probably that part of us that we try to explain in terms of the balance of nature and nurture. We don't know fully why we are, who we are, the way we are. We don't know if it's because we got it from someone else or if it's in our DNA or in our shaping or in our uh, family of origin or where it comes from. We are a mystery. But this is... I think in many ways what we are meant to direct to God. In summary of this first commandment, I think what Yahweh God wanted from his people, what he wanted from Israel, and that Jesus is recalling here is this. It's a love that embraces the mystery and the contradiction of being human and turning that back toward God, our maker, affectionately. Because we don't know And we can be content, friends, to be able to say, Lord, you know, and accept that we are made for God and we are restless until we find our rest in God. So turn all of that toward him in love. What about this second great commandment? And I'll spend a lot less time on this one than that one. There's something that I think we 21st century late modern individualists really need to see here. He says, love God with with everything, with all your being. Then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Two things. The self is at the end. I think we need to hear that. But also, it's in there. The love of self is assumed. You can't not love yourself at least in some way and prefer yourself. And I know some of us struggle with this in different ways, but it is assumed that we operate from our own self-preservation and distinction and our own protection. Jesus knows how we operate, that self-interest is our reflex, our MO, right? But his command is not to love ourselves less, it's to love others just as much, to bring it up into a balance, the balance for which we were created. Yes, Loving others often means denying ourselves, but listen, it doesn't mean diminishing ourselves. That kind of diminishment is an idea that's rooted in scarcity. It starts in the wrong place. It starts with a zero-sum view of love. It's not a gospel idea. Taking account, listen, taking account of everything that the scriptures have to say, teach about love and what the self-emptying of Jesus produced, the underlying assumption is this, is that when we give more love away, There is yet more love to give. We become vessels that overflow. Over and over we see the principle in Jesus, his own life of multiplication and abundance in his own ministry. Over and over, if we will actually believe and attempt to follow it, giving and sharing with and blessing and contending for and making room for others, it produces yet something more in us and for us. But we live with a scarcity and a zero-sum mindset as if to give away means I am without. And Jesus is saying, actually, you are more. It's digging a deeper well. This is what Jesus knows about humanity. Yes, it might mean an initial sacrifice or loss when we give, and that's very often where we get tripped up, that first part. 
We will be reduced or diminished, we think. But something about that emptied space, according to the gospel, according to the life of Christ, according to the lordship of Jesus, something about that emptied space in us, if you will, it invites greater capacity for the filling up. More to give. And so Jesus can, right here, without hesitation, tell us to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves, if not more. And if we do so, we only stand to do what? We only stand to multiply blessing into the world. We only stand to put more of the character and the likeness of the generous and loving God we serve into a world of scarcity and self-protection and competition. It's actually us being more fully human. So let me close with this, just in reflecting on this second great commandment. In his novel, um, the brothers Karamazov, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, he felt that even more was possible as a result of this kind of neighbor love. And he's speaking in the voice of a, a wise elder, a believing elder in this book, chapter four, who says this, says, strive to love your neighbor actively and tirelessly. And in as far as you advance in this love, you will grow, you will grow sure of the reality of God and the immortality of your own soul. When you love, when you give, when you do all of that, then God is there to pour into you more of the assurance of his love for you. But when we operate from a sense of scarcity and of competition and of self-protection, we are squeezing the capacities of our own souls, the God-given capacity and the God-expanding capacity that he desires for us. Why? Because every command, listen, every command that God gave, that Jesus fulfilled, and that he renews right here, listen, it's an invitation. And our impoverished mindsets can often simply see it as a demand or an expectation. It is an invitation. It's an invitation to be made more fully alive through love, through directing our love toward God and toward what and who God loves. What does diminish us is the love of unworthy things. Jesus inviting us to not love unworthy things and thereby be made less than we are created to be. Making our neighbors and other creation less than they are created to be. And so it's no accident, friends, that every week we begin our worship remembering these two commands. Longing to live into them, and then what? Calling out for mercy when we inevitably fall short, and we do. But you know what? That's not where we finish with those two commands. Where do we finish? In abundance. We finish by responding to another invitation with open hands and in thanksgiving, receiving again that which we are intended to give away, the love of God that makes all our love possible, this Sunday meal of grace and power for the Monday of God only knows what. Do you believe that? Lord, we, it's hard. We struggle to believe it. We feel how finite we are, and we think that everything's limited because we are. But we thank you today again for this invitation to be more, to be mysterious, to be unknown to ourselves in many ways, and to know that we, there are many things we can't say about you because we don't know. But you are bigger and you are greater and you are abundant. We ask that you would just unlock this in our hearts, that love would flow out of us. We wouldn't become moralists for the sake of love, but we would become lovers for the sake of you and the world you love. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Amen.